1 Thessalonians chapter 5, from verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with, with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. 1 Thessalonians at chapter 5. And as already mentioned, we're going to focus particularly on uh, a very short verse, the 16th verse, uh, but referring to some others, rejoice always. Now, Matthew phoned me towards the end of this week or during the course of it to inform me that James is unwell. And then he very kindly, I almost said wisely, asked me to preach, but perhaps that's going too far. He very kindly asked me to preach. And immediately two thoughts come into my mind. One sent me back to the time when I was London. in London. The phone rang and a voice said, can you come and preach? Our preacher is taking ill suddenly. Can you come? And I happened to be free and I went. And when they were introducing me, they put it like this. It's good to know when we can't get anybody else, we can have Bill Patterson. <laughs> so that thought did rise in my mind when Matthew asked me to preach. Perhaps he was down through the bottom of the barrel or scraping it. The second thought was, what should I preach on? Now, there was an immediate temptation. I thought I could have an old, well-traveled sermon that had been used many times, and I wouldn't have to think too much. And it was a real temptation. But then I thought, well, I've been sort of considering this passage in Thessalonians. And God is saying, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything, all circumstances, to give thanks for this is the will of God. What an amazing thing. You're thinking about next week in the, the mission at university. Can you imagine uh, those who are participating in it? If they're rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks constantly, what an impact, what an influence that would have in terms of people. But perhaps it meant virtually nothing to you. It's just like words, water off a duck's back. They, they were just Teflon coated. You heard the words, but it hasn't had any impact or effect upon you. No reaction or response. Well, I've only got one message for you. You need Jesus Christ. You need to be saved. Uh, sin has got such a grip on you and such a hold over you and has blinded your eyes and has 
have you in that state of spiritual deadness that even the mighty words of God and all the glorious and immense implications hasn't said anything to you? You really do need the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want to focus on this text in particular, Rejoice Always. And I want to look at three particular aspects of it this evening. Brings this exhortation before these Christian people in Thessalonica and through them to us. What, were the, what was Paul's thinking? What was the, 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 the reasons they had for presenting that? I can remember one time uh, leading a meeting, conducting a meeting from a representative of what was then called the Gideons. And, and I wanted to be a little bit provo- uh, provocative and play the devil's advocate. So I spoke to, uh, I, I put a question to the representative of the Gideons. Oh, I said, oh, you're those people that indiscriminately put Bibles everywhere. And he said, we never do anything indiscriminately. We do everything purposefully. Now, I believe the Apostle Paul never did anything indiscriminately. And he did everything purposefully. And he had a clear purpose in having this this exhortation brought before these believers and through them to us. And I want us to look a little bit into that. And then I want to also expand or expound the actual text. What does it say in these words? Rejoice always. Rejoice always. And then finally to emphasize the provision which God has made in order for us to implement, apply, and work those things out in our lives and our experience, which is equally important. So looking first at this thought, rejoice always. And the reasons for that. And I think Paul is doing that because perhaps he appreciated or he understood there was a certain view of Christianity or a perspective on what the Christian life was like amongst these people, amongst these Christian people here. And we get some indication of it in some of the other verses. For example, we are told, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt. And there seemed to be a certain reluctance or reticence for if there's any sort of emotion or if there's anything outward, there was a nervousness, a caution amongst these people. Uh, perhaps they're a bit worried, like, worried about that. We know this Corinthian church was just the opposite. For these Corinthian believers, it was chaotic and anything goes and Paul has to say, now we have to do things orderly. We have to have things done decently in a way that commends the gospel and the way that's acceptable to God. But perhaps in Thessalonica, it was the opposite. There was a nervousness. There was a degree of caution. They they wanted to keep a lid on these things and in a measure to suppress them. And so the Apostle Paul has to say to them now, remember, don't be hesitant. Don't be reticent when it comes to rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Express it, show it, demonstrate it, uh, do, do it. See, it's Spurgeon, when he was commenting on this particular text, he hit on that particular notion. And I will quote what he said. He, He sensed that this was true amongst the people of God in his time. He said, I'm bound to mention among the curiosities of the churches that I have known, there are many deeply spiritual Christian people who are afraid to rejoice. 
Some even take such a view of religion that it's their sacred duty to be gloomy, said Mr. Spurgeon. He went on, turn, turn over this book or turn this book to this book, meaning the Bible, and this is what he says. And if there is a precept that the Lord has given you in which he said, groan in the Lord always, and again I say groan. If you find such a tax, he said, you have the liberty to groan. But he said, I call you to a higher liberty which we have in our God and which he calls you to. And that liberty is to rejoice in the Lord always. Dear friends, do we feel that liberty this evening? Do we feel that liberty day by day? But when we go to serve the Lord or seek to perform our Christian duties. Now, sadly, that spirit, that attitude that Spurgeon made reference to has not ceased today. Someone was telling me about a church in a particular part of the country. I shall not uh, name the church, but it's a good church and there are godly people. And there was a baptism to be had and at the baptism as a young man, he went through the waters of baptism. And as he came out of the pool, he said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And a certain elderly brother came over and said, my dear man, one praise the Lord is sufficient. <laughs> you see, that spirit that somehow or other, that, that to express, to exhibit a spirit of praise and gratitude and joy is somehow not in keeping with true and genuine spirituality. Now, I believe Spirit along, uh, Spurgeon, along with the Apostle Paul, saw that there are some people who feel or have this attitude or approach that joy equates with levity or superficiality. That somehow the spirituality means someone who's lightweight, who doesn't think much, who doesn't think deeply, who has no sense of sobriety in terms or seriousness in their Christian lives. In other words, they think they don't take life in general seriously and particularly when it comes to the Christian life. Now I ask you, could anyone even suggest that the Apostle Paul was lightweight? Could anyone say that the Apostle Paul was in deep in thought and exercised and showed true sobriety. If ever there was a man that showed that, that he, levity was far removed and remote from his thinking, it was the, the, the Apostle Paul. We, we know about his life. His approach was analytical. His conclusions were careful. He was a Pharisee and one of the Great Pharisees previously, rabbinical in his reasoning. That was his character and his nature, the Apostle Paul. And then it's this man who's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord. Somehow if Paul didn't seem to get this message that many people are saying. It's the Apostle Paul who's saying this. I think what Paul is saying to these people, you must get serious when it comes to rejoicing. You must be serious. C.S. Lewis, 
uh, uh, said, and I'm sure some of you have read his books, both for children and for adults. And he said, joy is a serious business of heaven. And he was undoubtedly true. After all, he was an Irishman and a Belfast boy. What else would you expect? The serious business of heaven. But I think Paul would add to it. Joy is a serious business of the Christian on earth. We said of the Lord Jesus Christ that he must be about, or he said he must be about his father's business. Are we about our father's business? This is our business here to rejoice in the Lord. And you just find this again and again in Christians over the centuries. Isaac Watts, and again, you couldn't say that Watts was in any sense a lightweight. He was a theologian. He was a poet. He was a pastor and a preacher. And Watts tells us, or he puts into words, uh, certain truths. I love this hymn. Listen to the words. Come we that love the Lord and let your joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. The sorrows of the mind be banished from the place. Religion was never designed to make our pleasures less. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our gods, but children of the heavenly king may shed their joys abroad. Isn't that wonderful? And what elaborates that again and again? It was he who gave us that, that wonderful song, Joy to the World. The Lord has come. Now, it's interesting when Watts had that uh, compiled along with other hymns. And this is what he says was the title for the hymn, Heavenly Joy on Earth. Heavenly Joy on Earth. Another one of uh, one of the preachers of a former generation, Philip Dudwich. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice. On thee, my Savior and my God, well may my glowing heart rejoice until its raptures all abroad. Rejoice in the Lord always. And so what Paul is saying here, we should not be inhibited when it comes to expressing, to showing, to exhibiting, to displaying the joy of the Lord. And the second reason why I think it was necessary was because of the situation in which these believers found themselves. The circumstances in which they were placed. They were far from conducive. They were far, far from congenial. We would say that they were times of adversity uh, that these dear folk were uh, experienced. And we know these things can drag us down. We do appreciate that they can drain our joys or in many ways can bring us to a point and a place where we do not rejoice in the Lord always. And the Bible recognizes that. Peter speaks at times being bowed down through many-sided trials. But he didn't stop there. But even then he said, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But he is realistic. And the Apostle Paul knows that as well. And Paul clearly shows that he's acquainted with 
the situation of these people in that particular time. Even the very beginning, the inception of their Christian experience, chapter 1, verse 6. For you welcomed the message, that is the gospel, in the midst of severe suffering or affliction, strong terminology. And then Paul adds this note, with joy in the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't minimize, and we should never minimize the troubles or the experiences, or the problems, or the difficulties of other people. Paul never did. Again, in the second chapter, verse 14 of chapter 2, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as the churches in Judea suffered from the Jews. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you find out what that meant. Stephen was stoned to death. James was decapitated by the sword. Peter and the other apostles were imprisoned. Many Christians lost their goods and their livelihoods. And so Paul says, here they are. You are suffering in the same way that they did. That's the experience which Christian people can have. In chapter 3, Paul expresses his deep concern for them. In verses 1 to 3, He says, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, where he had gone to after Thessalonica. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. Destined for them. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Not only does Paul acknowledge these, these sufferings, he appreciates the impact they have upon them. But does he water down? Is he restrained when he calls them? To rejoice in the Lord always or to rejoice continually? He doesn't. Appreciating that, knowing that, aware of it and the implications. And he knows the impact it can have on us, being unsettled, disturbed. He, he is conscious of these things. And yet he also calls them to rejoice in the Lord always. He, he knew that some had died since he had left those believers. And obviously that had an impact upon it. Other people were having doubts or difficulties about what happened after death. There were some people even disruptive in the church. All of these things. But he did not feel that any of these things or all of them combined should in any way minimize that responsibility to Rejoice continually. And so he calls them uh, to do so at, at this particular time. And the same with us, dear friends. We, we know how things can affect us uh, uh, and dominate us. Suffering and affliction and pain and sorrow and sadness. They're part and, powerful, part and parcel of our lives in f- some shape or some form or other. That will happen. But does that mean our calling in any way is diminished? Does that mean the challenge that Paul puts out to us 
is reduced? Does that mean the change that would have to take place in order for us to be like that somehow or other should not occur? I know they can affect us. And oftentimes they can affect us so much that almost we can't think about anything else. We can hardly remember. We can hardly remember the spiritual blessings we have. You know, sometimes there are horses that run and they put uh, these things on so that they can't see uh, anything but just directly ahead of them. Uh, The Americans call them blinders, and quite rightly. It's to make the horse blind to anything other than that's just there in front of them. And Satan wants to do that. Just to keep us blind to who we are in Christ. The blessings we've received in Christ. The promises we have in Christ. The future we have before us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The the blinkers, the blinders are on us. I've met people like that. I've heard of people like that. I remember Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones telling on one occasion about a man who came to see him. And the man was deeply distressed. And he could see there was something that was affecting him and his mind uh, deeply, even by the way he sat and he looked. And so Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, tell me what's happened. He said, I was a submariner in the Second World War. He said, we're fighting and... uh, we were attacking ships. And then the submarine was detected. And he said, we heard the sound of the destroyer coming. And he said, we heard the sound of it, the engines, the bang, the bang, the bang. And then suddenly the explosions. And the submarine was rocked and things were starting to leak. And we thought, we were lost. We are going to be buried in the depths of the sea. And people won't even know where we are. And so Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said to him, you're not telling me the truth. So he went over the story. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you're not telling me the truth. And he went over the story. And he said to the doctor, he said, you weren't there, I was there. What do you mean I'm not telling you the truth? He said, you didn't tell me how you escaped. There this man was so dominated by that horrendous experience, and we can understand it. It blocked out everything and anything else in life. And he was defined, held captive in that moment. Paul knows that. And he's aware of that. But he will not let us be defined by our problems and our shortcomings and our difficulties. He wants to tell us something God is calling calling us to something greater, something more. Wonderful in that. And then I think the third reason why he, he calls uh, these people to that is what I would call expectations, or particularly low expectations. Can I ask you a question? Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of us came this evening thinking, we're going to rejoice in the Lord always. How many of us came? How many of us rose up this morning? And that was the, the, loom, the thought that loomed large in our minds. Well, you're just as guilty as I am then. But it's amazing, isn't it, how we lower our expectations and we learn to live 
with our low expectations. But God is not satisfied with that for us. He is a higher calling for us. And Paul realized that. And that's why the clarion call goes out. The challenge comes to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. One writer has put it this way. We are so subnormal that if ever we became normal, we would appear to be abnormal. Now, he wasn't Irish. <laughs> but just think about it. Watchman Nee wrote a book, The Normal Christian Life. Well, what Paul is calling us to here is the normal Christian life. Rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing always. And he's calling us to that. I wonder when you had that passage read and these words, rejoice always. Did you say amazing? Astonishing? Awesome? What a calling. What a challenge. What a change might have to occur. No, for that to be. I think this is Paul is setting out these reasons. He wants, as it were, to, to, to draw these believers in. Yes, I, I know you have these views about rejoicing. You need to overcome them. I know you have these difficult situations and they get to you and they bring you low and bring you down and have a detrimental effect. I, I know that. But that does not in any way diminish our calling or the clarion call that comes to us. I know that you might have been living on a certain level. Now it's time to come to God's level. You know, it's so easy to get used to the status quo of our own experience or even the status quo of others around about us when it isn't God's status quo. This is what Paul is simply doing, calling us, inviting us, encouraging us, come, come to what God is calling us to. Now I want just to look a little bit of expanding or expounding that, this particular text. And we have to look at a little bit of grammar. Rejoice always. And the first thing is, it's in the present tense. That means it's something that is continuous. It's not intermittent and it's not occasional. It's not something that happens at particular times. It's something that should be true of us, part of us, at all times and on all occasions. It's not something infrequent. It's something that's part and parcel of our living. Rejoicing. Always. An integral part of our lives and our living. And then it's in the imperative. It's in the imperative. Paul is not making a suggestion. I'm sure we've all heard people, preachers saying, I would suggest this. Paul is suggesting nothing. It's not a suggestion. It's an exhortation. It's an obligation. He's not sort of opening up the force. Here is an option which he's presenting to us. Or this is a, an optional extra, as if this is a, a higher form of Christian life, some deluxe model for an elite, special few. Here is the obligation which is placed before all believers. 
all those in Thessalonica, all those here in Emmanuel this evening. It's an obligation. We might choose to do otherwise. But Paul says we have no right to choose to do otherwise because it is this imperative. It is rather like the language which we use a commanding officer who's addressing his troops before the battle. Now, in Dad's army, uh, Sergeant William, Wilson might say, now, now, my chaps, if you feel like it, I think we'll attack today. <laughs> that is not what has been done here. Here is a clear command which is unequivocal, and the expectation is it will be embraced fully when it comes to our lives and to our living. Now, I haven't been in the forces, but I have members of my family have. And sometimes there are two types of orders. There are special orders or sealed orders for specific tasks, or in other words, special operations. And they're given. And then there are standing orders. And standing orders are for the everyday life of the soldier, irrespective of the circumstances. And what Paul is doing here is giving us standing orders. Standing orders. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice always. And he knew sometimes how difficult it is for us to take that in. When he's writing to the Philippians, he puts it this way. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then for emphasis, he says, and I'm going to say it again, rejoice. That's what the apostle is doing here. It's in the active voice. We are to be proactive. We're not sort of waiting for something to happen. It's something in which we are to be actively, proactively involved. Not by our own energies, as we'll see later. But clearly, we're to be proactive in that regard. And then the next thing is all the verbs in this passage are plural. They're all plural. And that's important, I think, in two levels. First of all, everybody's included, nobody's excused, either you or me or any other believer. Nobody's exempt. All are embraced. Isn't that wonderful? All are embraced in this. They're all plural. It includes you and includes me. It includes us now and includes us in tomorrow morning. But also, there's another side. It can also mean that it was communal. In other words, this is to be typical of the fellowship, the gathered company of the Lord's people. Ralph P. Martin says, the way this is written, you'd almost think it was an order of service. All the things that were going to be done during the service. Can you imagine it? A company of people rejoicing always, praying continually, giving thanks in every situation. Robert Browning, on one occasion, he wrote, he said, I've been to church today and was not discouraged. What a blessing. 
Could you be discouraged if you gathered with a company like that? For all were rejoicing always. For all were continuously in touch with the Lord. And all were giving thanks. This is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. What a company. What a privilege. What a delight. Dear friends, these are my musings. Oh, I hope in some way they will also become yours. And so that's what the text means. Here it is. Uh, It's uh, communal. It's continual. It's vital. All of these things are true in that. Now, in the original language, it isn't as it is in our English versions, which says, rejoice always. In the original language, it's always rejoice. In other words, the adverb is before the verb. And that's important. It's almost as if Paul was saying, I take it for granted that you'll be rejoicing. He said, but what I'm saying to you is, you must always rejoice. And he has that way around because that's where the stress is. And they always, they always. Whatever the difficulty. Whatever the day. Whatever the duty. However dull the situation is. Always. 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 What a challenge. What a call. What a wonderful thing the Lord is bringing us to. And that's in that two little words. Can anybody tell me what the shortest version of the Bible is? Correct. Now, in the original language, this 16th verse is a close-run thing with Jesus wept. Wouldn't it be great if we knew this verse as well as we knew the verse, Jesus wept? Always rejoice. Rejoice always. That's our calling. Now, very quickly, I must go through to my last point and the provision which uh, has been made for us to do that. Paul had two great truths in his mind, or should I say twin truths, which run parallel. And these twin truths were, this is the will of God for the believer. You notice what we've said here, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I used to read that, that the giving thanks always was God's will for us in Christ Jesus. That's true. I no longer think that that's the import of what Paul is saying. What he's saying, rejoicing always, and praying continuously, and giving thanks. This is the will of God for us. This is the will of God for us. 
Now, Paul uses similar language uh, when he's talking about our sanctification in chapter 4. And he talks about, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that about sanctification. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Should we only be sanctified occasionally? Should we only be sanctified when we feel like it? Should we only be sanctified when it suits? No. That would be repugnant. God's will for our sanctification is constant, ongoing. While we're on planet Earth, before we have glorified spirits and glorified bodies, before that, we, we need to be sanctified. And the same words are used. This is the will of God for you when it comes to rejoicing. Not when it suits. Not when we feel like it. Not when it's convenient. This is the will of God for us. You're thinking about rejoicing. Let's just have this thought, Paul's thought, in your mind, as it was in his mind. This is the will of God for me. This is the will of God for me. But the second great truth of this, and it's equally important, this is the work of God in us. Not only the will of God for us, but the work of God uh, in us. Uh, And you find this being brought out in the passage. What does he say here? Don't quench the Spirit. Well, because it is the Holy Spirit who is the great enabler, the great encourager when it comes uh, to rejoicing. Remember we said at the get-go in their Christian experience, it was in much affliction they received the message with joy. Where? In the Holy Spirit. Even our Lord Jesus Christ said he was filled with the Spirit and he prayed, I thank you, God, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, filled with the Spirit's joy he prayed for the disciples. This is the work of God. This is why we have this. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the work of God within us. That's the wonderful thing. You know, when you think about rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, who do you think about? The Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it? That was him. Constantly in touch with his Father. Continually giving thanks to him. Rejoicing in his Father. And so it's the very life of Christ. That's why Paul, I believe, could be so definite in giving this exhortation and making this call to these believers because of Christ within them by the power of the Spirit. And you find all Paul's prayers and all Paul's exhortations are always based like that. I don't know if you heard the story, a famous preacher in Scotland, and in the early days of his ministry, he had an old ramshackle car. It was one of those cars he spent more time under it than in it. I don't know if you ever had one of those. 
I see a few smiles. <laughs> Certainly we did. And a lady in the congregation who was quite affluent <laughs> said to Mr. So-and-so, look, I-, I want to let you have one of my cars. It was a two and a half liter. A bit better than an 1100, wasn't it? Two and a half liter. And it was immaculate. Anyway, he got the car. A couple of weeks later, the lady saw him in the old car. What's happened? Has he crashed my car? (laughs) What's happened to it? So finally she got round to him and said, Mr. So-and-so, where's my car? And he looked rather sheepishly and said, in my garage. I said, what's it doing in your garage? He said, I couldn't afford to run that car. It's outside my range, my resources. He said, Mr. So-and-so, when I said to you, you run my car, I meant at my expense, not yours. Not your resources, my resources. And when God calls us to rejoice always, to always rejoice, he's actually saying, here's my resources. Through my spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes very immediately and just makes, uh, even we can't quite understand it, but we feel our hearts uplifted and enlarged. And they're dancing at the sound of the Savior's name. Have you had that experience? Other times it's intermediately. And what the Holy Spirit does, and he was sent to do this, to bring to our remembrance the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to lead us into the truth. One of the most devastating sections of the New Testament is John's Gospel. And that moment when the Lord declared to the disciples he was going away and was indicating that they would all be implicated in what was going to happen to him. They were, the bottom fell out of the world. They were lost. Totally devastated. But it's interesting, in those chapters 13 through 17, you know, there are seven references to joy. How can the Lord, was he insensitive? Did he not know how they were feeling? He keeps talking about their, their joy being complete and being fulfilled. Fulfilled a joy that the world can't give and the world can't take away. He even says about my joy being in you. Can you imagine if you're sorrowing and someone comes along and starts talking about joy? (laughs) What are you doing? Have you no empathy at all? Of course the Lord had empathy. But you know something? In that same passage from John 13 through 17, There are eight references to God's love and Christ's love for us. It says, as the Father has loved me. And no wonder the Father loves Christ. Everything about him is lovable. The more you know the Lord Jesus, the more you love him. There's nothing unlovely about him. Everything is lovely. No wonder the Father loves the Son. But the astonishing thing is, as the Father has loved me, He loves you. 
and I love you. And he keeps repeating that. And he says, not only that, I'm going to put that love within you, in your heart. Don't you feel special if anybody loves you? Don't you feel important? No matter what your circumstances are, don't you feel important that someone says, I love you. And you think behind that word, the heart and a head that's planning and curry. And what's going on around about you and even within you, suddenly you sense, oh, it's so different. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it glorious? And God is constantly telling his people he loves them. Through Isaiah, he said, and he says to the people, because you're honored and precious in my sight and because I love you, I will do all this for you. Can you imagine it? If it was the other way around and, and we were saying because God is honored, that would be true. If we said God is precious, that would be right. That, that we love God, well, he deserves it. You know what he says? You're honored. You know, they wait for the New Year's honors list to see who's getting a gong, don't they? That's nothing compared to how God views his people. You're honored in my sight. You're precious. And because I love you, dear friends, if you're a believer, you're loved with everlasting love. Free, unconditional love. A love that will never let you go. And because he loves us so, he'll never, ever let us go. Oh, what, what joy that brings to the heart. What joy it brings to us. And Paul knows that. And through the work of the Spirit, to enable us to do the will of God, we are then given the capacity to rejoice in the Lord. Always. Always to rejoice. What are we going to do later tonight? How are we going to start tomorrow? What's going to be our expectation for the coming week? It's going to be rejoicing in the Lord. Always. Always. But in this evening, if what I've said has largely gone over your head, means nothing to you, doesn't touch you, I have to say to you, you need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need salvation. And that love reaches out to you that you might come and be part of this great calling and face this challenge and see this glorious change that the Lord affects.